Our scripture reading is John 14, starting at verse 15, and we'll read right through to the end of the chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we return to John, where Jesus is speaking with his disciples at the Last Supper. And we've seen as we've gone through the, uh, through the gospel that John reports to us various things that Jesus said, various things, sometimes in Galilee, sometimes in Jerusalem. But at the beginning of chapter 13, he slows down the narrative and he brings things into a sharp focus. And he focuses on the last few hours, that supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And he devotes five chapters of his gospel to what Jesus said to his disciples at that last supper. And you'll remember how he begins that account. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a theme in these chapters. The love of Christ for his disciples. The love of Christ for you and me. Having loved us, he loves us to the end. But we also see here the warning the word of prediction to his disciples that Jesus is leaving. He's departing from this world. And yet the disciples will remain in this world. 
And that's a theme in these passages also. Jesus' departure. He's leaving. They will remain. And he warns them that the world is a place of darkness. It's a place of sin and evil. A place of hatred. A place of tribulation. A place where they will be tempted to fall away. And these warnings about the darkness of the world aren't simply hypothetical. And he's not speaking of some distant possibility. Because the darkness of which he speaks is present among them. In fact, one of the twelve, Judas, has already been lost to the darkness. He's already gone out into the darkness. It was night. And our Lord has just told Peter that Peter himself would deny him three times later that evening. So the darkness of the world is very much present among them. And the words of our Lord to his disciples are also the words of our Lord to us in the world. We're in the world too. We're in the midst of this darkness also. We face the same sin. We face the hatred, the tribulation, the temptation to fall away. And again, the darkness is not hypothetical. It's not abstract. It's very real. And yes, we are the victims of that darkness. We're the victims of that hatred, that sin. But we also need to recognize that we're participants in that darkness, in that sin. And we're at a moment in the year, the first Sunday of July, where we are halfway through the year 2021. And it's good to be thinking about what the next year holds for us, the next six months. And as we look ahead to the next six months, we're very aware of the darkness in our land. And the hostility towards Christ and his church is becoming increasingly open. It's overt. It's no longer subtle. And we, we know what Jesus, what Jesus speaks of when he speaks of the hatred of the world and the tribulation in the world. But also as we look ahead over the next six months, we see ahead of us the work of repairing, of reconciling broken relationships, repairing the divisions among us. It's been a test for the church this last year and a half. Divisions have emerged among us. And as we look ahead to these next six months, we need to face the source of these divisions. We need to think about the work of repairing relationships, reconciling differences. And even in our own personal lives, many of us are aware of the, the lingering sin that has emerged over the last year and a half, and the disappointments of the last year, and the hurts of the last year, the fears of the last year. And as we look ahead to the coming six months of, of this year, those sins are with us still. Those fears are still there. And so, yes, Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. But he says that to us too, because our hearts are troubled. And we're uncertain, we're anxious about what the next six months may hold for us. And so our Lord says to us this morning, he says to you, he says to me, in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our anxiety. He says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now that's a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Neither let them be afraid. Our Lord commands us this morning, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. But he commands us after promising us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. There's a sense where in the world, peace is something that's achieved. We achieve peace. We achieve it through education. We achieve it through implementing social and political policies. But this is not the peace of the world. Jesus says, my peace I give you. His peace we don't achieve. We receive it. We receive that peace. And the peace we receive is his. It's his peace. It's the peace of God. Now, the reality of that peace we know because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And think of the scene that we have the evening of the first day when Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, came among his disciples. Remember what he said to them. Peace be with you. And then remember what he did. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we know this peace in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to consider four truths that our Lord reveals to us about the gift of the Holy Spirit in this passage. So there's four things. First, the Spirit is another helper sent from the Father. We need to consider that. He's another helper. We're told that the Spirit is with us forever. Thirdly, the Spirit teaches us all things. And then finally, the Spirit empowers us with God's love to keep God's commandments. So those four things I want to consider. So first, the Spirit is another helper sent from the Father. Now we need to do a little bit of Trinitarian theology with this one. So that's point one. You're fresh. I think you're ready for this. Some Trinitarian theology. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father. So the Son is asking the Father. And he, the Father, will give you another helper. Now depending on your translation, a different word may appear there. We have the ESV. The word that appears there is helper. Some translations will say comforter. Some translations will say counselor or advocate. But all of those words are translating a Greek word, which is paraclete, the paraclete. And the paraclete, the word itself means someone who is called to be alongside another person. That's a paraclete. Someone that's called to be alongside another person. And so it's translated helper or advocate or counselor or comforter. But notice that Jesus says... The Father will send another helper, another paraclete. Because the first paraclete is the Son himself. He's a paraclete from the Father. And in fact, we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, if anyone, does, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a helper, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, Jesus has been saying to his disciples, I'm going to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. He's going to the Father to be their advocate in heaven with the Father. 
and the risen Son of God and ascended Son of God is our advocate in heaven with the Father. We have a helper there, an advocate there, who is with the Father. But here Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will send another advocate who will be with us. And so what Jesus is revealing to us here is God the Father has sent God the Son. He has given God the Son. And God the Son became flesh. He lived, he taught, he ministered among us. He died on the cross for our sin. He was raised on the third day. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's returned to the Father. And he is our advocate with the Father. But Jesus says, Yes, you have me as your advocate in heaven, but the Father will send another advocate who will be with you here on earth. So we have an advocate with the Father, the very Son of God, and we have an advocate with us, also sent from the Father, the Spirit of God. Now both the Son and the Spirit are from the Father. The Son is begotten from the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. Both are from the Father. This is why Jesus says, and you may have wondered at this, verse 28, that the Father is greater than I. Well, in what sense is the Father greater than the Son? Well, the Father is greater than the Son because the Son is from the Father. And so you could say that the Father is greater than the Spirit because the Spirit is from the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that the Spirit and the Son are somehow inferior to the Father. They are co-equal with the Father, one in being with the Father. They share in the, in the life and the love of the Father. But the Son and the Spirit are from the Father. Now, the main point for us here, what we need to hear in this, is that when Jesus says, the Father will send another advocate, another helper, the implication of that is, just as the Son is fully God, because he's from the Father, so the Spirit is fully God, because he is from the Father. Now, the glorious truth here is that we have an advocate with the Father in heaven, and we have an advocate with us here on earth. And just think about what what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. What Jesus reveals to us in this passage, Paul works out in Romans chapter 8, because there he's also speaking of the Son and the Spirit, who are our advocates. And remember what he says there, that when we pray, the Spirit, our advocate with us, is interceding on our behalf. And then he goes on to say a few verses later, when we are praying, the Son with the Father is interceding on our behalf. And never underestimate the profound mystery, but the reality of our communion with the triune God in prayer. When we pray, the Spirit is interceding to the Father. And when we pray, the Son is interceding to the Father. And especially when we gather together in corporate prayer. That is a moment where heaven and earth have come together. And we find ourselves in communion with the very communion of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
So the first point, Jesus sends, or Jesus asks the Father, and the Father sends another helper, the Spirit of truth. And then secondly, the Spirit who is with us forever. Not with us for a time, not with us sometimes. The Spirit who is with us forever. This means that the Spirit is the personal presence of God with us. And the personal presence of God with us forever. Listen again to verses 16 and then verse 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, you know him. You know the Spirit. Now, he doesn't mean by that that we have a certain theological understanding of the Spirit. He doesn't mean by that that we know about the Spirit. That there's, there's a certain kind of rational appreciation or an intellectual understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he means when he says, you know him. And here we need to remember that when Scripture speaks of knowing, it's not, it's not an intellectual or rational understanding of something. Knowing in Scripture is personal. Knowing in Scripture is relational. To say that we know the Spirit means that we know Him personally. We know Him because we are in communion with Him. We're in relationship with Him. We know Him. And our Lord reinforces that by saying, for he dwells with you, and he is in you. Now, as we read through these verses, we find that it's not just a personal knowledge of the Spirit that we have, but the Spirit brings to us a personal knowledge of the Son, of Jesus himself. This is why our Lord says in verse 18... I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, as we read through these verses, we find that Jesus, on the one hand, is warning, I'm going to leave, and on the other hand, is assuring them, I'm going to be with you. Well, how do we reconcile these two things? Is he leaving, or is he going to be with them? We see something similar in Matthew 28, verse 20. Our Lord, before his ascension, before he goes up, before he leaves and departs from their sight, says to them, behold, I'm with you always until the end of the age. So how is it that the son can leave and at the same time promise that he will be with us and never leave us nor forsake us? Well, he can say that because he is sending the spirit And in the presence of the Spirit, we know the presence of the Son. And in the presence of the Spirit, we have the presence of the Son. And because the Spirit is with us, Jesus is with us. Now the reason that's the case is because the Spirit joins us to Christ. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, even our bodies, our physical bodies, are members of Christ. The Spirit of God has joined us to Christ. So you can think of it this way. Because the Spirit is with us, 
forever. We are with Jesus forever. And that's what Jesus says in verse 20. In that day, in the day when the Father will send the Spirit, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You'll know that reality, that I'm with the Father. And you in me and I in you. In that day when the Spirit is given, you will know that I'm with the Father and you will know that I am in you and you are in me. This is what the Spirit does. Reveals to us the reality of the relationship and the union of the Father and the Son and also joins us to the Son. So that what Jesus says we know that he is in us and we are in him. Now, our Lord says that the Spirit will be with us forever, forever. On the one hand, this means he will be with us for all times. But we need to remember that this means that he is not just with us for all times, but he is with us in all times. And you may hear this, what Jesus is saying here about the the mystery and the reality of our union with Christ and our communion with the Spirit, and think, okay, yeah, we, we, know, we know that reality, especially when we're, when we're gathered together for worship on a Sunday morning or in times of prayer or in times in Scripture reading. Uh, we know this is true, that the Spirit is with us. But we need to remember that this is true in the midst of temptation, in the midst of the trials and tribulations and the ups and downs of our day-to-day life, in the nitty-gritty In, in the nitty-gritty of your day-to-day life in your home, in the nitty-gritty of your struggle raising your kids, in the nitty-gritty of your workplace, wherever you are. And as you're trying to navigate even the new reality now that we find ourselves, and I was speaking with someone this week, the, the sensitivity training that you're given, the pressure within your workplaces to affirm and support everything that the culture is affirming and supporting. Whether it's critical race theory or the LGBTQ plus agenda. In the midst of that reality, in the midst of the nitty-gritty of our day-to-day lives, in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, the Spirit is with us. The reality of which, of which we've just been reflecting upon, that's true in those moments. He is with us forever, for all times and in all times. And we need to remember that the spirit we have received is not a spirit of slavery, so that we might fall back into fear. So what Paul says again in Romans 8, but the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And in all times, in every moment of our lives, we have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the glory of this truth is that even in those moments where we can't pray, even in those moments where we feel as though God has abandoned us, has turned his face away from us, Paul says in those moments when we don't know how to pray or we can't pray, in those moments the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. And the Father hears the voice of the Spirit interceding for us. So the Spirit, another helper who is with us forever, And then thirdly, the Spirit teaches us all things. 
Yes, he's the personal presence of God with us, but he is the spirit of truth who teaches us. Look at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we need to remember that Jesus is with his disciples. And what he says here is to his disciples, but it's also to us. And we need to consider both. The implication of what he's saying here to his disciples, but also what it means for us too. Now he is saying something particular to his disciples. He's saying to his disciples, the Spirit is going to teach you, my disciples, all things. And he's going to bring to your remembrance, you, my disciples, he'll bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. Now, the disciples were our Lord's appointed witnesses. That's what Peter himself says in the the book of Acts. We were set apart. We were appointed as witnesses to the resurrection. It's not just that we had eyewitness experience, but we have been appointed to be those who testify to the resurrection, those who are witnesses to the resurrection. So the disciples were those that the Lord had appointed as witnesses and sent out. That's why the disciples are then called the apostles. They're sent as witnesses. Now what our Lord is saying here is the Spirit is going to teach you apostles as you go out and bear witness. And will bring to your remembrance the things that I have taught you. Now we have that preserved for us in the New Testament. Those things which the Spirit taught the disciples, those things which he brought to their remembrance have been preserved for us in the New Testament. But think of how Paul speaks of his own experience. Paul was an apostle. And he says this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. He's speaking of his own preaching ministry. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Now think about what Paul is saying here about his letters. These are words taught not by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul and the other apostles were aware that God's Spirit was teaching them. And that the words that they were writing down were words given them by the Spirit, taught them by the Spirit, not by human wisdom. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 26 says something about our scriptures, about the New Testament, about the Old Testament. These are words that are given by the Spirit and written down, preserved by the Spirit. The reason that we all have a Bible, the reason that we can open up this book and read these words is because the Spirit has not only inspired the writers, but preserved these words, kept them for us. But there's more to it than that. And this is where what Jesus says concerns us. Because Paul says that these words that have been taught by the Spirit interpret spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, to those who will read them, to those who will hear them. That's us. And the Spirit didn't simply inspire the words of Scripture. The Spirit illuminates the words of Scripture. The Spirit gives us ears to hear. 
the Spirit opens our heart and our mind to receive these words. And when Jesus says, I'm giving you another helper, the Spirit of truth, the one who will teach you, it's not just the apostles who will write these things, it's us. The Spirit is our teacher. The Spirit gives us ears to hear. And so only by the Spirit of God are we able to receive the Word of God, hear the Word of God. But it's not simply, I'm going to add one other layer to this. God's Spirit has taught and preserved these words which we have in Scripture. God's Spirit gives, illuminates the words, gives us ears to hear it, to receive it, to understand it. But the reality of the Spirit's work isn't limited simply to the text of Scripture and our reception of the text of Scripture. It also applies to our witness in the world. And I'm going to add another I word here. The Spirit has inspired these words. The Spirit illuminates these words. But the Spirit also ignites these words. Ignites these words in our witness to the world. So that we, that, that the Word of God is not simply preserved in a text, but the witnesses to the Word of God, the people of God who speak the Word of God, the Spirit preserves them. In other words, the Spirit preserves us. And it's not just the case. The promise that the Spirit will be with us forever is not just a promise that the Word of God will be preserved, that there's always going to be a book. There'll always be the Bible. The greater promise is there's always going to be a people who receive this book and preach this book. In other words, the witnesses to the Word of God will always be there. The church will be preserved. God will keep his people by the Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit is the confirmation, the assurance that he will keep us so that the church is preserved in history. The church will never be wiped out. God's bride will never be lost. He'll keep us. He loves us. He cherishes us. He has us. And this should give us great confidence when we're sharing the gospel because our, our at times, feeble words are words that are given by the Spirit because they're these words. They're the words of God. The word of the gospel is the word of God. And the Spirit ignites those words. And you, you may feel totally unqualified to speak the word of God to your neighbor, your colleague, your coworker. But the Spirit of God ignites those words. And so there's power in your witness. And the Spirit will give ears to those who will hear it. And so as long as we are faithful in sharing the gospel and sharing the word of God, the Spirit does the work. So the Spirit is our teacher. And then the final point, the Spirit empowers us with God's love to keep God's word. So listen to verses 15 and verses, uh, verse 21, these two verses. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now we need to be careful that we don't read this in a, in a merely legalistic way. And here's what I mean by that. That as long as we are observing his commandments, then we know that we love him. And so we reduce our love for God simply to 
an outward observance of his commandments. Now, it's not less than that. It does mean keeping his commandments, but it's much more than that. Because if it's just that, then our love for the Son, our love for God, depends on our own desire, our own ability, our own effort to keep the commandments. And we know our own hearts that left to ourselves, our our hearts are weak. We, We don't love him. We don't desire him. We desire all kinds of other things. And we've, we've been reminded of that over this last year and a half, where it's like, I'd rather just watch Netflix or do this or do that. We know that. And we know we're unable to keep his commandments. We don't have that ability. So if, if our love for God is dependent on what's within us, then we're not able to love God. And what Jesus is saying here is, keeping the commandments is the outward manifestation of your love for me. But your love for me is a love that God gives. And he gives it by the Spirit. And the Spirit in us is the love of God in us so that we can keep his commandments. And notice what Jesus says at the end. He's been speaking of our love for him and keeping commandments. But in the last verse, 31, he says, I do as the Father commanded me. I keep the commandments so that the world may know that I love the Father. Well, there we see it. He, we know he loves the Father. And we know he loves the Father because we see him keeping the commandments. But we don't doubt our Lord's ability to love his Father. We don't doubt the resources there. And so are we left to just think, okay, I just need to imitate the Son. The Son obeys the Father. I'm going to try and obey the Father. And in that, I'll love the Father. No, there's a deeper reality here. When our Lord says that he will send, he will ask the Father, and the Father will send another helper, another paraclete. Notice he says that immediately following that initial exhortation. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, the reality of that statement, the truth of that statement, keeping that statement, depends upon the next statement. I will send another helper. Without that helper, we cannot love God. Without that helper, we cannot keep the commandments. But because he has sent us the Spirit, we can love God. And we can keep his commandments. And the reason is, the very love that the Son has for the Father, and so he obeys the Father... The Spirit gives us. He gives us the love of Jesus for the Father. He gives us the love of the Son for the Father. So that we are then able to keep the commandments. And this is what Paul says in Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And so the Spirit of God is the love of God in our hearts which empowers us to keep the commandments And here we see in what Jesus tells us in this passage, the fulfillment of what is promised in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, speaking of the new covenant, God says, it won't be like the old covenant written on tablets of stone. In the new covenant, I will write my law on your heart. And then through Ezekiel, also speaking of the new covenant, he says, I'll remove your heart of stone. 
Now, it's one thing for God to say through Jeremiah, I'm going to write my law on your heart. Well, our heart's also stone, just as those tablets were stone. But then he says through Ezekiel, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, a new heart. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, cause you to keep my commandments. And so when our Lord says, I will send you another helper, he's saying, this is the one that will fulfill Jeremiah 31. This is the one that will fulfill Ezekiel 36. He will put my love in you so that you are able to keep the commandments. So keeping the commandments is spirit-motivated. It's spirit-empowered. It's only by the love of the Son in us by the Spirit that we keep those commandments. But we are called to keep the commandments. If we're not, the love of God is not in us. And I want to conclude with the warning of John in his pastoral letter, 1 John, where he says, don't claim... Don't claim to love God and then turn around and hate your brother. How can you love God who is invisible and hate your brother who is visible? If you love God, you will love your brother. And here, the, the, I, you know, I love this stuff, this Trinitarian theology, the love of the Spirit and the Son. But all of this lands and the reality of this is known and experienced in our relationships with one another. That's where the love of the Son in us is manifest. In our love for one another. In our keeping, our keeping the commandments concerning one another. And remember what Jesus has told us what this looks like. It means washing one another's feet. It means we stoop down. We bear one another's burdens. We meet one another's needs. We wash one another with intercessory prayer. With the blessing of God's word. That's what it means to love one another. And the, re- the reality of our communion with the love of God, of which Jesus speaks here, is manifest and made visible in our relationships with one another, in our love for one another. Now, this morning we come to the Lord's table again. And here in this meal, we have on display, again, the reality of which Jesus speaks in this chapter. He says, My peace. I give you, not as the world gives you, my peace. And as you're reading through the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, you'll come across the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And it was a meal that was eaten in the area of the tabernacle or the temple. And it's a meal that signified peace with God, fellowship with God, and fellowship with others. It'd be a family meal with friends in the presence of God, before God. And it was called a peace offering. And there is a sense where every Sunday we come forward to this meal and we eat a meal which is a peace offering, a fellowship offering. And in this meal, yes, the the one who has ascended to the Father and is our advocate in heaven, in this meal we're reminded that by the Spirit, he's with us. And in this meal we have communion with him. And we have communion with one another. So let's come to the Lord's table now, knowing that in this meal we have the assurance of the reality of the promise that Jesus makes in this passage, the presence of the Spirit, the gift of his love, but also the exhortation that if his love is in us, then we will keep his commandments. And so that's why we come now 
in repentance, acknowledging where we've not kept his commandments. And we come here again to receive his love and in the power of that love to go out to be those who bear witness to him and keep his commands.